Every business comes to life through its service experience. Your business success depends on whether your customers are loyal to you. That's where real value and profit is created. Great companies ubiquitously have great customer experiences. A thin red line divides those that invest and consistently deliver what their customers need and those that fail and get disrupted. In competitive and challenging times, leaders need to double down on their customer experience. Learn and grow the value you create. Grow your success. Be on the right side of that thin red line. This is the CX Guru with your host, Eric McCroskey, a globally recognized ops and customer experience guru, public speaker, and author. Your business success story begins now. Hi, and welcome to the Customer Experience Guru. My name is Eric McCroskey, your host, and today I'm very excited to have with me uh, April Dunford, a globally recognized leader in brand positioning. She's been working in this space for well over 25 years, working with a lot of different startup executives. Uh, and currently, she's also the author of Obviously Awesome, How to Nail Product Positioning So Customers Get It, Buy It, and Love It. So April, welcome to the show. Really excited to have you on. So great to be here. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So first, I'd love to hear a little bit from you in terms of how you got into brand positioning and, and really how you got your passion for it. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I had a bit of a weird winding road to get into marketing at all. Like my, you know, I studied systems design engineering in school, but when I finished, I got a job at a startup and, uh, the first startup, that first startup that I was working at, we did a repositioning exercise. So the product that I was assigned to and was working on, um, was a bit of a dud. <laughs> like it kind of wasn't <laughs> selling. Um, we had this idea for it. And we put it out in the market and it just wasn't selling. And we ended up repositioning that product into a totally different market based on what we saw people doing with it out in the, you know, in the real world. And mm. that product ended up really taking off and the company ended up getting acquired and by a big software company in Silicon Valley um, my, my boss left shortly after the acquisition and I ended up running the whole marketing team, which is kind of hilarious. There's me two years out of engineering school running this big global <laughs> marketing team. Um, but it opened my eyes to the idea that you can have something that you think is a winner positioned one way and it, it, it turns out it just doesn't work, but you right. could potentially take that same product position it a different way and it kind of opens people's eyes to the value of it and what you could do with it. So from that point forward, um, every new job that I got, we worked on the positioning first because I had had that experience. Mm. That, that, that's excellent. And, and really what caught my attention is really the, the subtitle of your book, which is really, I, I absolutely get it. It's, it's like customers need to get it. Uh, obviously, you want to buy it because it's a it's a financial transaction, but also the loving it part. If if right. you don't understand what it is, you can you could buy the wrong product and and get totally. uh, and get a lot of frustrations and so forth. So, uh, tell me a little bit about what positioning is and and uh, and, and how it's often misunderstood. Yeah. So positioning isn't a new concept. You know, it's been around since the early 80s. Uh, there were these guys, uh, Al Rees and Jack Trout, they wrote a book called Positioning, The Battle for Your Mind. And that came out in 1982. 
And even now, if you go to marketing school, uh, which I did eventually, um, that's, <laughs> that's the, that's the book that they teach you. And so it's kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a bedrock marketing fundamental concept. And yet it is super, super misunderstood. Like when I talk about positioning, folks generally say, oh yeah, yeah, I know positioning. That's like messaging. And I'm like, no, actually, no, it's not. And they'll say, oh, you know, it's, it's like, uh, it's like your tagline or your go-to-market strategy or your vision. Or the one that really bothers me was when people talk about brand positioning and I'm like, you know, there's branding and there's positioning and those two things are really, really different. In fact, most of the things that I think people confuse positioning with are actually outputs of positioning, but you need positioning first. I can't figure out my branding until I deeply understand who is this offering for and who do we compete against and right. how do we win? So in my mind, that my definition of positioning is that um, positioning defines how your product is the best in the world at delivering some value that a well-defined set of customers cares a lot about. And that sounds like a big mouthful. And the reason it's a big mouthful is because positioning is composed of kind of five component pieces. It defines who exactly are my competitive alternatives? What do I got that they don't have in terms of capabilities? So what are my unique capabilities? Then there's value. What's it's so what for those capabilities? What's the value that sure. we can deliver to customers? And then what customers are we talking about here? Like, so what is my segmentation? Who's my best fit customer? And then the last bit is market category. Like, are we email or are we chat? Are we CRM or are we team collaboration? And that's a definition of, you know, what's the market we intend to win. So positioning defines all five of those things. Mm. It, it, it makes so much sense. And, and if you've got a, a mismatch, that can cause a lot of issues. And not only will people not necessarily buy it, but you, you may be completely not servicing your base the right way. That's right. That's right. And so a lot of weak positioning comes from, um, you know, it'll come from things like this. Like the inventor gets up in the morning and says, you know what sucks, man, email sucks. <laughs> we need better email. <laughs> I, I hate email right. and I'm going to make new email. But, you know, they get that thing, they put it out in the market. People say, hey, I love this bit. I don't love that bit. And then you change things. And then the market itself is changing, uh, you know, and we have lots of different ways to communicate now. And there's not just email and there's all these other ways to communicate. And you fast forward a few years and maybe your email is actually better positioned as chat or team collaboration or something else. But the inventor often doesn't think of it that way because this change has been gradual and so they're still like, well, it's email, it's email. What else could it be? But meanwhile, customers are looking at it going, I don't know, man. It doesn't have a spam filter and it doesn't have a calendar. And I, I think that's kind of, if it's email, it's crappy email. Whereas you could have positioned it as chat and it would have been amazing. So, right. you know, there's a lot of bad positioning out there because we don't do it deliberately. And we tend to kind of fall into this sort of default positioning you know, where it's, you know, we're a database. What else could we possibly be? We're email. What else could we possibly be? When in fact, like a lot of the times you can step back and say, like, who do we compete with and how are we different and what's the value? And maybe we could contextualize this product in a different way that would make that value more obvious to the folks trying to make a purchase decision. Mm, that, that's that's really good, really powerful. Uh, what is some of the power? You've done lots of work with a lot of organizations. Tell me a little bit about some of the power of 
of really good nailed uh, brand or positioning in terms of the organization that, that you've worked with? Yeah. So, you know, I've got lots of examples of this, but I'll, I'll tell you one. <laughs> I'll tell you one because I think that, I think this issue is is fairly common. So sure. I joined a startup and we are we were in the CRM space. So customer relationship management, same space that uh, Salesforce is in right now. But this was going sure. back, going back 15 years or so. And uh, back then, Salesforce was around, but they were they really only sold CRM to very small companies back then. People forget this. And you know, they were selling, really? you know, yeah, they, they used to have a free, free first five seats were free. And the idea was your whole team could use it because uh, you only had five people and you could use this thing for free. <laughs> and uh, that, so they were selling there. But the, the king of enterprise CRM at the time was this big company called Siebel. And they were big, like uh, mm. publicly traded on the NASDAQ, uh, growing really fast, over two billion revenue, giant, giant company. So anyways, I joined this company and we were also enterprise CRM. We positioned in the exact same way. So unsurprising, okay. every time we got a meeting with a customer, the customer's like, okay, you're enterprise CRM, Siebel's enterprise CRM, so how are you better than Siebel? And right. the, the answer to the question was, we kind of <laughs> we weren't, right? Like in, in, any, in any way you could measure it, like... You know, they had they had eight thousand employees. I was employed like twenty two. They had four hundred right. customers. We had five. Right? They had two oh, billion revenue. We were doing less than two million revenue. Right. So, and then they had super mature product. They had all kinds of features we didn't have. Um, but here's the thing: we had a couple things that we thought made us really distinct. Um, and one of them was this really cool feature. And not only was it cool, it was a thing that Siebel could not do. Um, and what it allowed you to do was, you know, model relationships in the CRM in a slightly different way. The problem was okay. we didn't really understand the value of it. So we would go into to meetings and people would say, so how are you better than Siebel? And we'd say, well, we got this thing, right? And then we would demo this thing <laughs> and it looked really good in demos, right? So we'd show them like, hey, we got this great thing. And they you could see people getting all confused. They'd squint at it and go, yeah, that looks kind of cool. Like, so what do you use that for? And we'd say, anything you want. <laughs> and then they oh, go, hmm, yeah, right. Well, and then they'd say, what else you got? And then we get to our second differentiator was we were cheaper, right? Because we were desperate. And, right. and we, you know, we would drop our price if you, if you asked. And we'd say, you know, they'd say, could you go any cheaper? We'll see how much money you got. Like basically like, <laughs> and so needless to say, this wasn't going so well. And how we busted out of this was, um, you know, again, because we never positioned deliberately, we never kind of stood back and thought about it. And in this case, it was kind of a, it was kind of a, a, a stroke of luck that got us out of this was mm -hmm. we hired a new sales rep. And part of the reason why we hired the sales rep is because the sales rep came into the interview and told us if we hired him, he had a friend who was the head of investment banking at Goldman Sachs, and he was going to get us a meeting. And so we literally hired the we literally hired the guy for that. And then we and then we went into the meeting, and I did a ride along with the sales rep. So we go to the meeting. Head of investment banking is there, who's like a big wheel dude, right? So uh, we go into the meeting, and uh, you know my rep's great, does the whole demo, gets to the thing part where he shows our special thing, this this how to model relationships thing, and the guy gets really excited. He says, whoa, 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 whoa. So are you saying if you got people and they sit on a board together, but they actually work in different companies, you could model that? Mm -hmm. And we're like, yeah. And he's like, uh -huh. and so like if people 
belonged to the same like country club or something. You could model that. We're like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, whoa, hang on. Got to get my guys. And he runs down the hall and he comes back with three vice presidents that work for him. And he's like, show these guys the thing. Show them the thing. And so we go to the demo again and we show it again. And they're the same thing. They get really excited and they're like, wait, wait. So if this person used to work with this person, but now they don't work with that person anymore, you know, but you could model that in your software. And we're like, yeah, we could. The guys get really super excited. And they're like, oh my God, we got to have this. And we close the deal in the meeting. This has never wow. happened before. This has never happened for us before. Like we were doing big, big deals. It usually take us six months, a year to close the deal. So it turns out that the value of that feature was super, super important right. if you were in investment banking. So investment banking does a lot of um, relationship building and, you know, they'll go and have lunch with one guy and they want to come back to the office and say, well, who does that person know that I could call up and say, hey, I just had lunch with Joe and you know Joe because you used to sit on a board together. Now I'm going to go have lunch with you because you want to know what Joe knows. And so right. so once we figured that out, then we were like, oh, boy, we should go try selling this to other investment banks. And we did. And that worked really well. So every time we went into investment banks, same thing. We walk in, we show them the thing, everybody gets all excited, we close the deal. But here's where it gets interesting. So we, you know, so we start selling for the first time ever. We're really excited. But it sparked this conversation back in the office. Like, are we really enterprise CRM? Is that what we are? Or are we CRM for investment banks? Now, That might not seem like a big change, but the way we reasoned it out internally was if we could say we were CRM for investment banks, then maybe we could get out of this head-to-head comparison against Siebel and say, look, they're they're for everybody else, but you're investment bank and it's just for that. And then maybe investment banks could find us and come to us as opposed to us having to go to them. And like the worst part about selling investment banks is getting the meeting. (laughs) Nobody wants to take your meeting. These are big deal people. So we decided, well, okay, we're going to we're going to niche down and we're going to be CRM for investment banks. And I'm telling you, it took us a long time to to have the courage to do that. And then when we pitched it to the board, the board hated it. The board was like, "Oh my god, no. We didn't write you a check to be some niche lifestyle business, you know, like how many investment banks are there and how much money could you possibly make selling right. just to investment banks?" And so here's how we reasoned it out with them. We said, "Look, Two things. One, it's not like we're giving anything up, man. Like we, we're not selling anything anyway. <laughs> and, like, and, and, and from a tactical perspective, we're focusing all our time on investment banks because nobody else wants our stuff. So that's that's point one. Right. Two, um, you know, and we we were big fans of Jeffrey Moore at the time. And so we had all read Crossing the Chasm. And, and Jeffrey Moore explains this approach to cracking a market and Crossing the Chasm where he talks about bowling pin strategy and The way that works is you identify the lead pin market, which for us was investment banking. And then once you get that, you knock over the adjacent pins. So we went to the board and said, look, our lead pins investment banking. But don't worry. Once we get a critical number of investment banks and we're doing good there, then we're going to sell to retail banking because we got all these reference accounts and banks, right? And some of these folks have a retail arm. So then we'll sell retail banking. Then we'll just be financial services for banking, and then after we get that, then, mm. you know, retail banking is is has quite a bit of overlap with insurance. So then we're going to go sell to sure. insurance and then we're going to be CRM for financial services. And I'm telling you, mm. if we manage to get that far, that's a giant, giant, giant market. And we're going to be a great big company by then. And once we're there, then we're going to take on Siebel head to head. We're going to knock those guys out. 
And the board liked that plan. And so they said yes. And so we uh, did the shift and it was absolutely sure. transformational for the business. Like we went from, you know, poking along at a million and a half, two million revenue for a few years to this rocket to the moon where we 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 did just under 80 million in about 18 months. And so oh, wow. this thing was like <laughs> bananas. And the coolest part about it was we didn't have to go head to head with Siebel anymore, technically, right? We'd go in and we'd sure. say, hey, we're CRM for investment banks. And the bankers would get a little squinty eyed and say, well, 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 hang on. What about Siebel? Like, do you guys compete with them? And we'd say, oh, Siebel, we love those guys. They're amazing. Oh, my God. So big. <laughs> so fantastic. So, oh, they're just fantastic. We love those guys. We really love what they're doing over there. They're like the world's greatest CR, like general purpose CRM for like, right. I don't know, call centers or manufacturing plants or retailers, but not you, Wolf of Wall Street. You need something special. Let me show you this thing. Right. <laughs> you know? And so we could kind of cut them out of a deal before we even got going. And so anyways, we grew really, really fast. And the end of that story is... Um, Siebel got so sick of us, we were like beating them all over Wall Street. And then we went to London and we were beating them with all the investment banks in London and Switzerland and stuff. And then they came and acquired us for $1.3 billion. Wow. And now think about and then that. And became Siebel. And then we were Siebel, which was a drag to tell you the truth. But um, but the, the, the if you think about it, you know, the the board's worry, like, oh, you're not going to make any money. Was you know we, we're this little company in Canada, and by the time we did that deal, yep. we were the largest software company acquisition in the history of the country, wow. <laughs> which is ridiculous, <laughs> right? And so, but that's how it works, right? Like it's really hard if you're positioning yourself directly against a strong competitor. It's really hard to get any traction, but if you can find a piece of a market where you can win, then you can quickly get traction there. And then you can worry about how you're going to expand from that patch once you're dominating a patch later. And that's how right. this works. That's the power of it. That's phenomenal. So, so tell me a little bit about your approach. Obviously, if you want to get a lot of the details, it's all in the book, obviously awesome. But yeah. what are some, a couple of ideas around um, how do you start nailing your brand positioning? Yeah. So the thing that really frustrated me when I started marketing was that, you know, positions, positioning seemed like this super important, big deal concept, but nobody mm -hmm. knew how to do it. Like I read that book, Positioning the Battle for Your Mind. It was amazing. You get to the end and you're like, yes, I buy this. I got to go do this positioning thing. But there's <laughs> nothing in that book that tells you how to do it. And that frustrated the heck right. out of me. So I develop my own methodology for doing it that I would use after, you know, when I went company to company to company, we'd come in and we'd use this methodology. And so it works yeah. like this. Um, if you think about it, so I mentioned earlier that positioning is composed of these five component pieces, right? So competitive alternatives, sure. unique capabilities, value, customer segments, and market category. If you look at that, the first thing you realize is each of those things has a relationship to each other. So you're sitting there right. looking at this five things saying, well, all I got to do is figure out the best answer for each of those five things, smash it together. I got good positioning. But when you look at any individual one, like let's take value, the differentiated sure. value that your product can deliver to customers is completely dependent on your unique capabilities. 
Mm-hmm. But your unique capabilities sure. are only unique when you compare them to a competitive alternative. So those things are all related mm-hmm. to each other. And then even when I look at like, who's my ideal customer? Well, my ideal customer, my best fit customer is the customer that cares a lot about the differentiated value I can deliver. And then even the last right. one, which is market category, like your best market category is essentially the context you position your product in such that this value is obvious to these folks. So for a long time, I, I sat with this thinking, well, the, all these things relate to each other, but I don't really know where the starting point is. And so, it, you know, so I would basically start somewhere, work my way around the circle, develop this sure. candidate positioning, go out, test it. And then um, if it worked great, uh, we'd use it. If it didn't, we threw it out and and we went again. But Eventually, what happened was I spent a long time reading about Jobs to be Done and Clayton Christensen, and um, mm-hmm. I kind of had this epiphany that you actually had to start with competitive alternatives, and then everything flowed from that. The problem is that we often define competitive alternatives in the wrong way. So here's how it works. Okay. Once I know who I who customers really compare me to, then I can say, what have I got that they don't have? That gets me my differentiated capabilities. Once I have those, I can map those capabilities to value for a customer. And that generally kind of themes out into a few value themes. And then I can say, well, here's my differentiated value. Who cares a lot about that value? And that's going to get me to my ideal fit customer. And once I have value and customer, then I can say, well, my best market category is the category that makes this value obvious to these folks. The trick on this is the starting point. We generally get this wrong because the way we think about competitors internally is often really different from the way customers look at it. So what I get a lot is like, you know, little startups will come to me and I'll say, hey, what you got? And I'll pitch me the thing and I'll say, well, so who do you compete against? And they'll say, well, uh, you know, our our big thing is ease of use. That's our value. And, And the reason that is, is because all the other competitors out there, like it takes 15 clicks to do a thing, but if you use ours... It takes two clicks. So ease of use is our big thing, and, and that's what we're positioned around. But then when I push on that and say, like, <laughs> I don't know, I never heard of any of those competitors before. Like, do you actually lose <laughs> deals to them? And and the answer is no. And I'm like, well, hang on. If you didn't exist, what would customers be doing? And the answer is right. usually something like, oh, they just use a spreadsheet, or they would hire an intern <laughs> to do it. And I'm like, my dudes, if you think you're going to beat the intern on ease of use, you're sorely mistaken <laughs> because right. there's nothing easier to use than the intern. I'm like, hey, Joey, get me a coffee while you're out there. Spread, you know, fill up the spreadsheet. Uh, come back. Like, right. But there's, and there, but there's lots of things Joey sucks at, right? Like Joey makes mistakes. Joey, you know, doesn't remember Mm. the profile for a customer the way a machine would. Joey quits on you. (laughs) Like there's all kinds of, (laughs) there's all kinds of things Joey can't do. And, and that's what you need to position around if you are indeed competing with the intern. So understanding the first starting point of that is critical. And, and you need to kind of ask yourself the question, like, what are your customers doing now? that they need to stop doing in order to use your stuff. And then if they do make a decision to stop doing that and they're going to do something else, who else do they look at? And then that's who you got to compete with. That's who you're going to win. And if you understand that, then you say, okay, now what have I got that they don't have? How does that map to value? Who cares a lot about that value? That's how you're going to get your good positioning. 
That, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I love the idea of, com of starting with the, the competitive alternatives, really in terms of understanding who, who, who really, wh what are you trying to differentiate from? I can, right. I can imagine so many deals are, are being lost as well from a sales standpoint because people aren't able to explain it in a way that, that makes sense. That's right. Uh, Nick, I, I'd love to, to hear a little bit of your thoughts around how do you make it real operationalize it within the business? Because uh, you can make some, some great work in terms of uh, on the brand side or on the, on the positioning side. It then needs to be operationalized. So the sales team yeah. or even if you've got a broader support team, as an example, so they live that point of difference. And the analogy I, I think yeah. when we've talked about before I use is did some work with one of the the, the best, highest, and hotel chains in the world. And um, in, in when they were trying to do differentiation for premium high-value guests, I remember one when, when team member who's like, oh, uh, I've got this guest who's staying at the highest, most expensive hotel in Chicago, and they're paying $800 a night, and it doesn't feel right. I want to show differentiation. I want to show that we value them, so I'm going to comp the parking for free because who would pay $100 for parking? And, and I would say the <laughs> person like, who paid $800 for a hotel room <laughs> right. probably doesn't care about the parking at $100, especially if they're building this to, 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 to their, their large firm, and I think it was an accounting firm of some sort. They probably even noticed that if they're bringing their family, that that's not the point of difference. What they're looking for is, is something because they're bringing their family that's linked to that high-end brand. Um, right. So cost might make sense if, if, if you normally stay at the Holiday Inn, uh, or the Howard Johnson, but if you're staying at that high-end hotel, that it doesn't make sense. So how, how do you make that come to life across an organization, across team members, across the sales yeah. force, so that they're constantly telling that story the right way? Yeah, well, this is, this is a really, really great point. Like, the thing about positioning is it doesn't just impact your sales pitch or the words on mm -hmm. your homepage. Like, it actually has an impact on everything you do. Like, um, right. you know, if you're, if you're positioned around a certain thing, then the pricing has to reflect that the packaging has to reflect it. Your roadmap of features need to right. reflect it. Like, um, there's a company I use as an example quite a bit. They're called ClearPath Robotics and they have a, um, a robot for manufacturing plants. And what it does is it okay. drives around and it delivers things from one place to the other. Now, what I liked about their positioning was they were having a problem with robot because their thing, I mean, it's, it's, it, it drives around, it's full of mapping and sensors and artificial intelligence. And people were comparing it to these really kind of stupid stationary robots that just sort of pick up a, a pick up a roll of tape and put it in a, put it in a box. And so, right. um, so they ended up doing a repositioning and, uh, and they repositioned themselves as, uh, self-driving cars for manufacturing or autonomous vehicles mm. for industrial uses. And so when you looked at how they, how they implemented that positioning, it was so cool. Like their, their website looked like a car website. Like it looked a lot like I was looking, I was looking <laughs> at cars and then they changed the actual industrial design of the robot itself in that they, they put these white headlights on the front and red taillights on the back. And they literally did nothing. Like they were there to drive home this imagery that this thing is a car. <laughs> it drives around. Um, <laughs> even the naming of things, like they had features that they renamed. Like they have a feature for managing a bunch of these, a bunch of these robots together. And they called that feature fleet management because that's what you would do if it was a bunch of cars, It'd be a fleet of cars. And so it was really neat to look at 
how that positioning played out across everything, across the pricing, the packaging, the industrial design, the naming of features, the product roadmap, everything changes with a change in positioning. Hmm. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Uh, so, so loved our conversation. I, I think you've brought a lot of really good points. A lot, I think a lot of organizations that uh, are, are struggling with customer experience, often it's because they've sold the, the wrong product to the wrong audience, uh, and, and then there's a mismatch, and it, it's not consistent throughout. I, I think a lot of what you've talked about is really starts with how you position and putting a lot of thought throughout it. Yeah. Um, anybody who's interested in it, I, I'd highly recommend picking up uh, your book, um, in, in, uh, uh, to get some ideas on how to make it real. Uh, and I believe you also consult and speak at a lot of conferences, uh, at least nowadays probably virtual conferences. Yeah, they're all, we're only doing virtual conferences now. <laughs> Even my consulting is all virtual now, which has actually been a real, it's been a blessing, actually. Like, I was on the road way too much before this. I wouldn't mind being a little bit on the road now, but... Um, but it's neat. Like what I really love is that, you know, all my, so I work one-on-one with companies doing positioning consulting and we do these workshops. And so it used to be, I would fly in and we would spend two days face to face. Uh, and instead now we, we do it over a series of zoom calls and that has been a surprisingly easy transition. Like I didn't, I, you know, I I had resisted doing that virtually for a long time, even for customers that asked for it, that were, you know, far away, like Australia and stuff. And they didn't want to pay for me to fly out there, but now I'm a convert. I'm like, you know what? We should have been, we shouldn't have been getting on planes for this before at all. I don't know what we were doing. We were stupid. (laughs) <laughs> I completely agree. I think it's going to completely change. It's opened our mind to, to new ways of doing things. I, I I appreciate it. I think the only one who doesn't love it is the airlines that don't get all the miles they used to fly as well. That's exactly it. Airlines and hotels and all the rest of it. And, you know, and I do miss exactly. occasional trip just for fun, I got to say. Yes. But it will come back. So <laughs> thank will. you so much for your time today. Take care. Yeah, thanks so much. Like what we do? Share this on your socials and tell everyone. Thank you for listening to the CX Guru on C-Suite Radio. Increase the value you create. Grow your brand. Drive your success. Distinguish yourself from the pack. Come back in two weeks for the next episode. Or listen to our sister show, The Ops Guru, with Eric McCroskey. Fuel your future. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.